0: Lord, we love you. We commit this time to you. I know we've prayed and we've worshipped and it's been such a stunning time in your presence. But God, we, we know that you want to speak to us this morning. We know that you have a plan and a purpose for this morning. You have a plan and a purpose for every single person in this building. And I pray that we would come into alignment with that, Lord God. Your good and perfect and pleasing will. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray right now for your peace where there are storms. I pray that you would intervene and you would bring your peace. I pray where there is sadness and mourning, I pray that you would bring your joy, Lord God. I pray that where there is confusion, you would, be your, you would bring your vision and your clarity this morning. Even as I preach what I preach, I pray that you would speak through it, whatever you want to speak. And I pray that what I say that is from me would be forgotten this morning. And I pray that what only that which is from you, even if it's only one sentence, God, that that would be remembered. We love you, God. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 10. So this morning we're looking at Nehemiah 10, and as we go through it, I'd like to ask you three questions. Three questions that as I was preparing, I felt God ask of me. And these questions will make more sense as we go through them. Some of them, or the first one is pretty clear, but some of the others aren't. But here they are. The first question, how aware of God are you right now? If we were to say awareness of God in this place, how aware of God are you as you go through the week? As you work, as you love your family, as you do what you do during the week, how aware of God are you? How aware of God am I? Question number two is, do we really believe? I mean, we're believers, not believers, we're believers. But do we really believe? I find myself in doubt so often when it comes to something that God has told me, and I get him saying to me, but you're a believer, why are you doubting? How often did Jesus say to his disciples, if you're doubting this morning, we're in good company? Because how often did Jesus say to his disciples, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Do we really believe? And are we sure of what we believe? And thirdly, probably the most obscure one, which will make sense a little later, is this Are you keeping the fire burning? Are you keeping the fire burning? I've always been inspired by stories of revival, stories of times gone by where God, whoa. Whenever I I think or talk about revival, I get teary. Where God awakened hearts to salvation, where God sovereignly met with people, where heaven came down in the most amazing and beautiful way. Times in the church's history where large communities of people were sovereignly gripped with the knowledge of and fear of God. These encounters and testimonies of God at work inspire me and challenge me and grip my heart. They're exciting and they're filled with incredible stories of God saving and redeeming whole communities in a short period of time. I remember when I was was younger, I was just out of school, it was a long time ago, and, and I had these tapes that's how long ago it was, that we still had tapes, and they were called revival fire tapes. And there were snippets of preachers and snippets of of worship and snippets of of short testimonies from the Brownsville revival that happened in Pensacola, Florida in the 90s. And I would listen to this, and I'd be so inspired and stirred, and then suddenly I'd just begin to weep. And I'd be, God, one day let me be used in something as amazing and beautiful as that revival, where you came and you did amazing things. And I found myself pulling out those tapes I found them on YouTube. Someone's thankfully put them on YouTube now so I don't have to find a tape recorder or a tape machine. And I listen to them on YouTube, and every time my eyes well up and I say, God, surely there is more. Surely there is another revival coming. Surely you will pour out your spirit even more on your sons and daughters. Surely more will prophesy. More will have dreams. More will see visions. And surely more will be saved. God, would you not pour out your spirit upon us? I love these stories. I've recently been rereading the the about the Hebrides revival that was in Scotland in 1949 in the Scottish Hebrides. And when I say revival, it could mean many different things to you. But I want to take some quotes now from John Campbell, who was a, a major preacher in the Hebrides revival, who God used amazingly to see revival come. And you're wondering where on earth does this fit into Nehemiah 10? It's all going to make sense. And if it doesn't, we will just pray. He said this. This is what he had to say about revival. Revival is something altogether different from evangelism on its highest level. Revival is a moving of God in the community. And suddenly the community becomes God-conscious before a word is said by any man representing any special effort. He went on to say that revival is a community saturated with the presence of God. Perhaps you're familiar with that saying. Perhaps you've studied revivals, or perhaps the word revival for you is something new, and you're thinking, well, hey, what's that about? He says revival is when God steps in sovereignly and awakens hearts to worship, awakens hearts to salvation, awakens whole communities at once because of his power, the power of His presence is there. What would that look like? See, it leads me to my first question. How aware of God are we? He said revival is an awareness of God. Surely if we are to see revival, then we as the church and we as believers are to be the ones who are saying, God, I want to be more aware of your presence than ever before. Another way of saying that is, how near are you to God right now? And church is amazing because we put on these smiles, we do. Because we don't want everyone to know that we're always going through difficulties. And sometimes in our lives, it feels like all we're doing is hitting closed door after closed door, like we're banging our head against a concrete wall trying to break it open, and it's just nothing is changing in our work with God. It's all downhill. It all seems like it's, it's down. It all, and those songs that they play on the radio about the storms, the vague water references about struggles, <laughs> you can listen to it on Caleb. It's It's all about my struggle. And you know what the reality is? We go through those struggles. And yes, God is victorious, but we do go through those struggles. And you might be saying, I'm going through those struggles. How can I step out of my struggles into revival? How can I step out of the the hole that I feel that I'm in, out of the rut and into revival? We need to ask God to breathe his life upon us. We know that in life we will have troubles, but we know Jesus has overcome the world, and we need to trust him to breathe his life into us and to guide us out of what we're in. And I'd like to say that there is hope this morning. If you are battling, if you are struggling through, there is hope this morning for you. There is hope, and God's saying, I'm about to awaken your hearts. I'm about to revive you and breathe my life into you. Will you come to me? Will you turn to me? Will you come near to me? The Bible says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. See, revival is sovereign from God. He determines when and how he pours out his spirit. But I've yet to read about a revival that did not partner with man's prayer and repentance before God. How does this fit into Nehemiah 10? We're going to see this in a moment. Revival, awakening, God partners with prayer and repentant hearts. Will we be the church that says, God, we want to see Chicago saved? Will we be the church that says, actually, we want to see revival here? Imagine this whole city awakened to God. Let me read you some accounts of what, just a short story of what uh, Duncan Campbell said happened. He said this, He said there was a dance happening, this is in 1949, with 100 young people in the parish hall. They weren't thinking of God or eternity. God was not at all in their thoughts. They were there to have a good night when suddenly the power of God fell upon the dance. This is separate to where the church meeting is happening. The music ceased and in a matter of minutes the hall was empty. They fled from the hall as a man fleeing from the plague and they made for the church. All over the community people just decided to go to church. They were gripped with the consciousness of God and were deeply concerned with the state of their souls. Imagine rocking up at work tomorrow morning, and your boss is suddenly asking you questions and deeply concerned with the state of his soul. Where up to now, he hasn't mentioned anything about his soul, and up to now, you've possibly thought he doesn't even have a soul, and he's there, he's asking you about it. Could that be when God pours out his spirit? Could that be when God awakens this community? But can I say that revival has to start with our hearts? I love these stories of revival. They stir my faith for more of God. And this is how it fits into Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter one to seven, we read about God using Nehemiah and, Nehemiah and giving him a vision and Nehemiah gathering all the people and inspiring them and God through Nehemiah and the people rebuilding the wall miraculously. In 52 days, a miracle work. We see them working together, getting behind his vision. In one, chapter one to seven, they go through adversity, they go through opposition, but they do it with the help of of their God because the gracious hand of the Lord was upon them. But now from chapters 8 to 13, we see God restoring His people. No longer is He restoring the ruins around them. He's restoring their hearts. And for me, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a picture of revival and reformation. Why? This is what happens. We spoke last week about how they remembered who God was and what He had done. And this continues now as we see them conscious of God in their midst. It's a picture of revival. I want us to read just quickly what actually happens. Turn to t- uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 28. This is about God awakening His people and God's people responding by returning to their Lord. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are about God's people returning to Him. In chapter 8, we heard two weeks ago when she preach that they return to the Word of God. And this isn't one or two people returning to read their Bibles. This is the whole community, the whole city, and the surrounding people coming and standing for hours on end, listening to the Word of God. And as they hear it, they begin to weep because they realize how far short they've fallen of the glory of God. They realize how they've sinned and turned their backs on God. A whole community suddenly returning to the Word of the Lord in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we, we read about how they remembered who God was and how they remembered what God had done, and this, chapter 9 is all about a confession and, and repentance before God. They've read the Word, they've realized how far they've fallen, so they come to God, and it's a, it's a great returning to God's presence, a great returning to intimacy with the Father. It's a great returning to prayer and fellowship and communion with God. Chapter 8, returning to the Word. Chapter 9, a returning to intimacy and fellowship with God. And chapter 10 is a return to belief and conviction. Chapter 9, they confess their sins to God and they worship and they adore Him. And in chapter 10, they get together and they sign this agreement. Let's read together. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38 says this. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement. In view of what? In view of the word that they've heard. In view of their penitence and repentant hearts. They're saying, we are making a binding agreement. Putting it in writing and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. They're putting their name on it. Let's skip to verse 29 of chapter 10. Because all that's between that is the names of the people who put their name on that seal. All these, all the people now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. I started by asking, how near are you to God right now? And hopefully some stories of revival have inspired you to say, God, I want to be nearer to you because the truth this morning, right now, how much of God do you have in your life? As much as you want. How much of God do you have in your life right now as much as you have sought after? And if you're here and you're a seeker, and you're like, I don't have my faith in God yet, but I'm searching, you've come to the right place because God says, they who seek me will find me when they seek me with all their hearts. We have as much of God as we want and we're walking in the reality of relationship with God that the past faithfulness has determined. Do I want to serve God until the end of my life, faithfully blazing out in a glorious flame of fire and passion for the King? Well, I do. (laughs) That is my life goal. But how do I do that? By living every day as hot on fire and passionate for God as I can. And let's be honest, we don't always get it right, which leads me to this next conviction. Uh, This next question is Do we really believe? Do we really believe? Do we really believe that God could actually come to Chicago? Do, do we? Do we believe that God could use us to pray for revival and see revival come? Do we believe it? Then let's pray about it. Let's worship God and say, God, come on. You've done it before and you can do it again. All through time, all through history, there's pictures of you sovereignly coming. God, we rest not in our own efforts and our own prayer, but we rest in your sovereignty this morning. But God, we've seen in every revival, in every move of God, we've seen all through Scripture, you choose to partner with broken men and women. You choose to partner with the foolish things of this world. So God, I will be your fool. As long as I'm your instrument to bring revival and awakening wherever I go. Nehemiah was like this. He hears about Jerusalem in chapter 1. And suddenly he gets this burden from God and he begins to pray and he's broken. And he puts up his hand and says, God, use me. And look what God did with him. He was comfortable. He was safe in his environment. He was at the top of his game working for a foreign king and a foreign court thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. There was no need for him to go. Yet he went because he was broken before God and God brought revival through him. God brought reformation through him. The truth is we get to choose how names will be remembered for all eternity. We get to choose that. What strikes me here is their conviction. They repent before God and all of a sudden they make these binding agreements, these promises to God. And not only do they say, hey God, we're going to serve you, they bind it with an oath and with a curse. They sign a covenant before God. Now, covenants in those days, I mean, I know we have covenants here and we have the marriage covenant, but back in those days, the covenant was heightened. And I believe God wants us to give a new view of His covenantal providence over our lives a covenantal view of his relationship with us and our relationship with others. But they took a covenant seriously. When they made a covenant and they it with an oath and with a curse, they were pretty much saying, if I disobey this, let me be cursed because I know I need to obey this and I want to obey this and this is how I want to live my life. That for me says, that's about conviction. And if we want to see revival here, then we need to be men and women of right conviction. Men and women who believe, do you really believe God can come right now? I'm hoping that faith is getting stirred. I can't make God come. I wish I could. I wish I could go, wow, and then suddenly God's in the room. But God does not respond to me waving my hands. God is sovereign and he is king of all. But he has said this, when my people who are called by name will humble themselves and pray, I will come and I will heal their land. He said it, therefore he will do it. The condition is, will we humble ourselves and pray? will we cry out and be those men and women of conviction? In the Hebrides revival, two old women, aged 84 and 82, the one fully blind, were greatly burdened because of the state of their church, burdened because not one young person came to their meetings. Now these two women began to pray, and their prayer and conviction is what initiated that revival. These two old women were women of right conviction. They were convinced that God was the only answer, so they sought Him in prayer, and they prayed twice, twice a week, and they said, for extended periods of time. And they prayed, and God answered their prayer. The second conviction they had was that God would fulfill His word. And this is the scripture they were gripped with. And recently, it's begun to grip my heart as I've read about them. It says this in Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. Can I ask this? How thirsty is the ground of your heart this morning? How thirsty are you for the awakening of God? How thirsty are you for His presence? Recently, I I wrote a song, and the first line of the song is, I need your awakening. Because as I stand here, I have all these desires, but I look at my life and I'm like, you have these promises, you have these desires, but look at you, you're not seeking God. And I know I am seeking God, but there's just a burning desire to seek God more. A burning desire to just see even more of Him through my life. And I'm sure it's the same with you. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams and the dry ground. Friends, it's time to get thirsty for God again. They believed it and they had conviction. Something helpful to to maybe help us understand what conviction is. Conviction is a firmly held belief. That's what the dictionary tells us. But it wasn't wasn't enough for me. And I was thinking about conviction, conviction. And the word that came to me was the word convicts as it's in the word conviction what is a convict a convict is someone who is held captive in prison for something they've done wrong whether it was rats and they're in prison for their faith or something wrong where they're imprisoned for breaking the law they are held captive because of a reason of something they have done conviction is very similar conviction is when i am held captive by something i believe in i ask the question do we really believe if we really believe, then what we will believe will hold us captive to a certain way of living. Let me say that again. No, I can't, because I can't remember it. it was too, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. If we want to see change and reformation in our lives, we've got to be men and women of conviction. We've got to believe. Let me share a story, a funny story. And I have a friend, and I'm not going to say his name in embarrass him because I don't want to embarrass Joe Piercey. Joe and I talk a lot about God and about the miraculous, and over the last little while, about healing. Now, I believe in healing. I was up all night with my son. He had this terrible cough, and I was praying for healing. I believe in healing. It's my boy. (laughs) Joe Pierce, also believes in healing. We both have a conviction that God is able to heal, and God is powerful to heal. But here's the difference. I believe in healing, and I pray for healing. But the difference is this, is that Joe always prays for healing. Wherever he goes, whether he's at work, at the supermarkets, he's told me some amazing testimonies of God using him to see people healed, and it's inspired me. He is a man of conviction that God heals, and wherever I go, the Spirit of God living inside of me is the power of all creation that will set the captives free. How can I be silent and not pray for people, is what he said to me last week. And I'm like, yes, I agree. If only I could live in that place of conviction. And I'm like, God, you are using this man to inspire me to deeper levels of conviction of what I should believe and I do believe. Let's move on. (laughs) Belief and conviction is when we draw the line in the sand and say, this is it, no further. Do you really believe? These people believed and because of it they signed a covenant and a promise with God with an oath and a curse that said basically if they did not live up to what they promised and what they believed, that they said basically curse me God. That is passion, that is conviction. Conviction. Which leads me to the next point, and uh, this is where we're actually going to get stuck into Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 34, so please turn down your Bibles. Are you keeping the fire burning? God, you're so good. God, just so good. Are you keeping the fire burning? Now, this, this passage that I'm about to read is really obscure, and the more I read this, I mean, you, you can go through the promise that's written in Nehemiah chapter 10, and what they promised to God, and every single one of those things we can apply to our lives, Every single one of those has spiritual significance for us and practical application for how we can live our lives as believers, even though it was a promise that these Jewish people made to God in the Old Covenant. It still has significance for us. But as I was reading it, there's one thing God kept highlighting is chapter uh, 10, verse 34, and I couldn't move beyond it. And then he began to speak to me about it. And the more I researched about this one verse, the more my mind was open and the more I fell in love with this verse, and the more I realized, God, how great is your word. How deep and how wonderful is the Word of God. This by itself, this this Word is is just a whole bunch of letters, but when we bring it to God and He he breathes His life on it by His Spirit, Jesus said the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And when we allow God to breathe on what we're reading, it takes on a new dimension and it comes alive inside of us. And the revelation that He can give us through His Word supersedes any wisdom and revelation we could find in our own strength in this world. In a moment. And this is what rocked my world about this. Let's read this. Are you keeping the fire burning? Remember, these are questions that God asked me. I just thought I'd share them because I couldn't answer them. Nehemiah 10 verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of our Lord as it is written in the law. Isn't that phenomenal? Phenomenal. No, on first reading, it's not. It's not. I'm like, God, what are you saying here? How on earth do I apply this in a sermon? I just want to read something quickly. Wood was an essential item in biblical times, and it was vital to the Jews' livelihood, not only in building and cooking and staying warm, but also it was vital to their system of worship and sacrifice. The entire Jewish worship system was centered around an altar, an altar where they would bring offerings to God and make sacrifices to Him, to not only show their love, adoration, praise, and thanksgiving, but also in obedience to be pure and holy before Him. In order for the Jewish people to walk with their God, they needed to be cleansed of their sins and walk in holiness. Now, this was impossible for them and for us. So God ordained that they would sacrifice animals for their sin and atonement. The price of their sin being paid by the sacrifice of that animal meant that their sins were atoned for and they could walk with their God. So central to their lives and religion is this temple and altar. And central to that altar is a command by the Lord in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13. And this is where it gets beautiful, friends. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. They had a temple, and in this temple, they had an altar where they would make these sacrifices. But God commanded them, the fire on that altar must never, ever go out. Oh, can you feel it in your life? Are you keeping the fires burning? Or have they grown cold? Another line in the song I wrote is what I was saying to God is, breathe these embers to flame. I felt cold, and I needed the breath of God to breathe His life into them. So there were two things that would happen as a result of what Nehemiah put into place here. First of all, they would cast lots and every family in the city would have an opportunity once a year to bring wood for the altar. And then also once a year, there would be what came about was a festival of wood. I know it sounds crazy, but there would be this festival of wood where where they would all go out together and gather wood together. And do you know what date that, that festival was? That festival would take place, from that time onwards, it would take place on August the 15th. Today is August the 12th. It's not August the 15th. It's not bring your wood to the altar today. But I do imagine that through years gone by, these people on August 12th would be out together as a community, as a family, gathering wood together. Gathering wood for the altar. What for? To keep the fires burning. And here we are today, and the wood has application for our lives as well. Are you keeping the fires burning? While we were in New Zealand, uh, we stayed with my parents for quite a bit, and they had this beautiful fireplace. And we stayed there over winter, which is nothing like a Chicago winter, but it was nothing like a South African winter as well, so it was something for me. And I began to learn about gathering wood for this fireplace in New Zealand. And forgive me if you've had a fireplace, but I've never had one, and I learned some lessons about gathering wood in New Zealand, and I thought I'd share them with you. I learned a few things. There's something beautiful about a fireplace. There's something warm and there's something cozy. But what I realized in preparing, because it was my job to make sure there was always wood in the fire, not any wood would do. Not any wood would do. Hard wood burns well. And you guys are like, yeah, we, we, we did that in school. Soft wood burns quickly. So in your gathering of wood for the altar, in your gathering of wood for any fireplace to keep warm, you want to find a specific type of wood or else you'll be out quickly again getting some more wood. Secondly, preparing the wood is vital. Not only cutting it in with an axe to the right sizes and to the right specifications to fit your fireplace or the altar, but also you know that when you cut a tree down, it cannot just be burnt because there's still life inside of it, there's still sap inside of it, and it has to dry out. So all of a sudden, maybe you're thinking about these these people going out to go collect wood, and actually it's not that easy because, one, they've got to find the right type of wood. And secondly, they've got to find wood that's prepared in the right way, and then they've got to even cut it up themselves, and that's time-consuming. And the third thing I realized was that it takes a lot of wood to keep a small fire going. It takes. I was forever outside chopping wood, carrying wood, chopping wood, carrying wood, just to keep this fire burning. And you can see now Nehemiah comes, and he's bringing these, this encouragement to the people, and he says, the, the fire of the Lord must never go out, so this is what we're going to do. You're going to go out once a year as a family, and bring and collect wood. And also, we're going to have this festival. What, actually, the festival came a little later, but basically to gather wood for the fire. Why? Because the fire could never go out. And this fire, this wood, in closing, I've got two things that this, this, this wood represents for us this morning. The wood was used for the altar, and the altar speaks to us about Jesus. The altar was a sacred place where gifts and sacrifices were offered to God. In the Old Testament, they had a temple and an altar where this would take place, a sacred place where gifts and sacrifices were offered to God, and it was their responsibility to keep that fire of that altar going. The temple with this altar was the place where God dwelt with Israel. It represented a place on earth where heaven and earth met. There were times in the Old Testament when actual fire would come from heaven and consume the offering. But when Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament and presented a new way to live before God, he presented a new temple and a new altar. Jesus, speaking about himself, said this, destroy this temple in John chapter 2, verse 19, and I will raise it again in three days. He's talking about his life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the new temple. In me, you will find the new place of sacrifice. He was speaking about himself. He was the new temple with a new altar. His life was the new sacred place where gifts and sacrifices were offered to God. He gave his life as a free will offering and a gift. He sacrificed his life for our sins in obedience to God. Jesus' life was the new temple and the cross was the new altar. The altar where his life was sacrificed for our sins. The altar where heaven and earth met and the sacrifice was accepted by God and the wrath of God was satisfied. The altar where Jesus worshipped by laying down his life for us. And this is where it gets beautiful because just as much as it points to Jesus this morning, the altar points to us. Because Jesus said to them, first of all, writing through Paul, he said, don't you know that you yourselves, talking to the church and also individuals, that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in my, inside of you? All of a sudden, Jesus, the temple, now he says, you are the temple of God. I lived the life of it being a sacred place where offerings and worship could rise to God. Now you go out and live the same. You be that temple, that sacred place where gifts and offerings and sacrifices can be made to God. And not only did Jesus take up his cross, he also gave us a cross to to Gary. He gave us a new altar. And he said this in Luke chapter 9 verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This wood in Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 34 is not just some random people gathering wood to keep the fires burning. It's a picture of Jesus dying on the cross for us to keep our fires burning. And it's a command and a commission from Jesus to us saying, keep your fires burning. As you live for me, as you take up your cross and follow me. And as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And an ending. What this wood speaks to me about, and I've mentioned it already, is that we need to keep the fire burning. We need to keep the fires burning. We need to keep our fires burning if we are going to be these men and women who see revival come to this place. If we are going to live with conviction, we need the fire to convince us of our conviction and what we believe. Without fire, there can be no sacrifice. How's the fire of your heart doing? Are you keeping the fires burning? Without the fire, there can be no sacrifice. Ever tried reading the word and it feels dead? Ever tried worshiping and it just feels empty? Ever lived this life lukewarm? Ever had a time where your love waned? Friends, reading the word is easy when your life is burning. Worshiping is easy when your life is burning. Loving God is easy when the fire is burning. Prayer is easy when the fire is burning. And I'm preaching to myself here. It's when the fire has gone out that it becomes hard. It is when the fire has gone out that it becomes religion. And it is when the fire has gone out that our lives are live trying to do it, all, do it all in our own strength. When the fire goes out we no longer burn in faith, what happened? Perhaps we forgot or neglected to keep the fires burning. The wood of His Word we forgot to gather. Maybe we got busy and we stopped devoting ourselves to His Word. The wood of obedience to His Word putting into practice what he's told us. Perhaps it's the word of prayer and intimacy with God. Perhaps it's the word of communion with the saints. The enemy's plan for you right now is to draw you out of community with God and draw you out of community with his believers, with his church. Why? Because he knows when you're alone, he can make you cold. He knows when you're in the middle of the fire, it's harder to get cold and it's harder for the coals of your life to grow cold. But when you're alone, take a coal out of the fire. It's a well-known image. That's the enemy's plan for you, but God says I have a plan and a purpose for you to keep your fires burning. That's why I came to the cross. And perhaps it's the word of service and offering, time laying down our lives for one another. What does it represent for you this morning? Let me ask those three questions again. How aware of God are you right now? How near to Him? Do you really believe that God can awaken this community and this city to know Him? And are you keeping Him? Your fire is burning. Thanks, James.
1: Aiden, that was outstanding. I think we have an opportunity to respond. And I think as I was sitting there and, and I was listening to Aiden, you know, when when one of the elders leads a meeting, part of what we try to do is we say, you know, Lord, uh, what is what is a right response? And to be honest, uh, I thought Aiden, you brought so many clear things that were stirring my heart that every time I thought, there's the response. And then five seconds later, I just felt like, no, there's the response. And what I think that's indicative of is the Lord is doing different things in hearts across the room, but it's dealing with conviction, being taken captive afresh to who Jesus is, and therefore what his lordship looks like in our lives. And this hunger, this desire for what Aiden was expressing about that fire continually burning, and that actually, actually, we have, we bear a partnership responsibility in that with the Lord. So I've asked Aiden to pray for us, but as he does, I want to invite us to stand. And I'm not prescribing a response in your heart, but I believe that the Holy Spirit is prompting one. So can we stand for a moment and just take a posture of receiving, and, and wherever the Lord has begun to say, Joel, this, or, or Jamie, Mel, this, can we just respond in, with, with an answer of yes? Because what I love about what Aiden brought today is it's, it's counter to this idea that we coast, that we just coast in the grace of God. Instead, we actually bring a partnership and we depend on the Lord for, his, for the outpouring of his spirit, but we receive and we partner and we respond. Aiden, would you pray that for us?
0: God, we come to you humbly. We return to you like Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem did in Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, and 10. We return this morning. Whatever that means for individuals, maybe it's a returning to devotion to your word. Maybe it's a returning in prayer and intimacy with you. And maybe it's a returning where it's a positive declaration of faith saying, God, I'm going to live for you again. This, This morning, God, I just pray that you would be God and you would do what only you can do. God, would you awaken our hearts? God, would you awaken us to your plan and purpose for our own lives and for your plan and purpose for this church in this city and in the nations of this world? Would you come by your precious Holy Spirit and indwell us like never before, where we've possibly been filled with you before? I pray that right now you would pour out your spirit afresh and there would be a great outpouring of your spirit over us, that we would be filled to overflowing, Lord God. There isn't a band trying to hype us up. There isn't a prayer that's trying to build anything up. This is a simple request, God, that you would come and do what you've promised. You promised you would pour your water out on thirsty ground, and we say, God, we're not that thirsty yet, but we want to be thirsty for some of us. Some of us are saying, God, we've been thirsting for so long. Would you come and fulfill your word? We look to you and say, you are a covenant-keeping God that you cannot be false to your word, and your word is said, if my people who are called by, name, by my name would humble themselves in prayer, I would come. And we humble ourselves. I humble myself before you, God. I'm tired of living unaware of your presence every day. I know I have my times with you and my moments with you, but God, I want every second of every day to be with you. And that can only happen through intimate relationship and fellowship with you. Would you come and awaken my heart Thank you that your awakening leads to salvation wherever we go, Lord God. Because when we are awakened by you, we cannot help but shine your love and shine your light and tell people of who you are. God, I pray for courage to share our testimonies encourage courage to step out in faith and pray for people. Why? Because we believe in you, God. God, I just ask you would come. God, that you would come and you would do what only you can do and fill us with your presence, oh God. We love you and we worship you and we commit our way to you. We commit our lives to you this morning.